upon a star. Now we want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Disneyland. Just go to Action Park, there's no other park like it. Six Flags Great Adventure. It's not a world away. Paramount's Kings Island. We will officially open Universal Studios Florida. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. Now, here is your host. Hi, and welcome back to the Defunct Land Podcast. My name is Kevin Perger. Today, I am joined by a very special guest, um, former Imagineer Brian Collins. Brian, thank you for joining me. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks, Kevin. I'm always excited to get to talk to a uh, Imagineer of any sort, um, but you in particular are really exciting to me because you've worked on a lot of Disney MGM attractions, and I have not had the opportunity right. to discuss these in, in depth yet, so I'm very thrilled to do that as well as just talk about your career as a whole. So thank you for coming on. No, th this will be a lot of fun. So uh, usually when I talk about um, stuff that's defunct, uh, it it's kind of sounds dated right away, but it's uh, perfect for you guys. So uh, this will be fun. Yes, it's the topicality of yesterday here at Defunct. <laughs> right, right. The, uh, every, <laughs> it's uh, the moment it's gone is the moment we're interested. You, you've worked on a lot of attractions. How many years were you at Imagineering? So... Officially, officially, I was only at WDI for a short time, um, about four years. Uh, not very long compared to uh, quite a few other people. But ever since moving on from WDI, uh, I've always had a dot-line dot relationship back to Disney and back to the theme park industry, uh, including up to today where uh, I've still taught classes as an adjunct professor, for example, at UCF. Uh, University of Central Florida in uh, theme park design and, and that type of thing. So uh, still still very well in tune with, with the uh, industry as a whole. And, and certainly I keep my eyes on Disney and take people, still take people like on tours through the park, you know, and, and give them that Imagineer's point of view as we walk through. So um, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like being in the mafia. You know, once, <laughs> once you get in, you can never leave. So. Absolutely. So what, yeah. what, what were those four years that you were there? Uh, 89 to uh, 93. So that's right when MGM is opening and in, its, in yeah. its infancy. It was, you know, it was an amazing time uh, to be there because it was under Eisner's watch. Um, Michael had so many plans, you know, to, to expand and do a lot of things. And the studios were just one piece of that. Um, I, I mean, I, I was there during the grand opening of Wonders of Life, uh, another defunct uh, attraction. I was uh, there during the grand opening of the Beijing Yacht Club in Pleasure Island. And, you know, just so many very, very cool um, projects. Uh, so, so it was... Uh, a short time, but it was jam-packed time for sure. And what was your uh, position? Did you move around, or did you have one role that you fit into? So, so all four of those years weren't officially with Imagineering. I actually, when I got to uh, Disney, I, I was doing some work. Uh, my background before coming to the company was working as a video producer down in Miami, and just to kind of age myself a little bit. 
um, I was actually producing the in-flight entertainment program for Eastern Airlines. If you oh, yeah. Them, right? If we, you yeah, have we wings, did an episode right? on that. <laughs> so um, then Eastern Airlines went bankrupt, and I was out of a job and moved up to Orlando, got a job with Disney. And to make a long story short, um, one of the first things I started doing there was working in cast communications, uh, which is like their internal communications uh, division. And I was writing stories for the company paper, Eyes and Ears. And I was producing some internal corporate videos, like training videos. Uh, And then at the same time, I also started doing some work uh, uh, with the marketing department when they were having these wonderful grand openings. So I did the grand opening of Splash Mountain. I did the grand opening of Star Tours. I did, you know, like I said before, all these other really cool grand openings. And uh, I also started working a little bit as a production assistant at the Disney MGM Studios uh, at the time. My uh, my uh, uh, production background, um, just you know, I just have to be in the right place at the right time. And I was actually, uh, the way I started, uh, I got that gig was I was actually standing in line uh, waiting to do, they, they were doing like, um, uh, like uh, run-throughs of the great movie ride uh, for cast members. And I was standing in line and just chatting with the guy next to me. And it turned out he was a production assistant. He was a full-time production assistant because if you remember back then, there was a lot of production going on at the studios, uh, TV production, some second unit movie production. It, it was very, very cool. Bette Midler so, shot that short film there. What's that? <laughs> so there's that Bette Midler short film they shot there. Right. The lottery right, yeah. or whatever that right, was. The lottery. That was for the back lot tour. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And, and several others, to be honest. Um, and, and I can talk about that a little bit more in a bit, but, um, yeah, uh, actually Wesley Snipes shot Passenger 57. I don't know if you remember that old movie, uh, but part of that was shot here in Orlando, uh, the Mickey Mouse Club, of course, um, Adventures in Wonderland, which was a really kind of a weird takeoff on Alice in Wonderland. Uh, The Price is Right. Um, I mean, there was a lot of TV stuff going on, so... Anyway, I, I was chatting with this uh, guy who, uh, as it turned out, happened to be one of, I think there were four full-time production assistants. And he said, listen, we're kind of busy. I could probably get you over here to, to do some work. So in a short time, I, I was starting to do work uh, uh, on the back lot of the studios, which was a lot of fun. And then eventually, through all of that different stuff I was doing in the company, I kind of networked internally and made my way to WDI and got brought on as a show writer uh, for Imagineering. And, you know, when we talk about a show writer, it, it's not writing shows, it's writing for the Disney show as a whole. So um, the very first thing I ever did was a... Uh, uh, when I actually went in to speak to the creative director who, who eventually wound up hiring me, he uh, gave me like a little test project. And it was the uh, script for the animation tour, the, the animation studio tour. And uh, he, he said, we're having some problems with this. See what you can do with it. And I 
took it home and brought it back a couple days later. And I guess he liked my rewrite. And uh, that was the very first script I wrote. So do you remember? I know, this was a, from there. I know that was a long time ago. Do you remember like the the general, like what you needed to go in there and punch up? Was it like you needed to add some humor? Was it just the structure? Like what did you have a, a anything on that specific project that you that you felt that, you know, like really pushed it along? <laughs> You know, um, I remember that the spiel that was uh, in the lobby area um, needed a little bit of polishing. I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, that they had like a bunch of Academy Awards Oscars on display. Uh, So I talked a little bit more about that. Um, I tried to make it just a little bit more conversational and themed, if you will, as opposed to more operational so Mm -hmm. um that that's you know kind of what i remember contributing to that um it was a long time ago but yeah and because that's a i mean these not only are you a show writer for imagineering but you're also a show writer for this kind of new ish concept that disney at least is trying out where it's not you know you're not show writing an attraction where you're filming a pre-show video you're you're show writing for tour guides and that's right. the whole attraction. Right. So, so right. I mean, is this for you, you came in and this is kind of what you were assigned, but did you, did you feel that like, okay, this is, we're trying to approach a familiar and unfamiliar thing. Did you kind of feel that like it was test and go or was, you know, what was that like? Um, you know, it was interesting because, and, and it's really kind of perceptive that, that you put it the way you did it in terms of kind of a, a new type of a uh, uh, spiel that uh, WDI was trying out in terms of these live tours because not, you know, I, I did the uh, um, animation studio tour. And once I finished that, that kind of was what it was. But the two other tours that kept me very busy was the backstage studio tour uh, and the backlot tour. So the walking tour and, and the shuttle tour. And those were constantly changing. Um, and I remember, you know, writing for me has always been very, very easy and very natural and kind of fun for me to do. I was one of those geeks that could, uh, write a term paper in school the night before it was due and turn it in and get an A. So writing was always something I just enjoyed and writing for Imagineering was, was, you know, just, you know, like, like the cherry on top of the Sunday, um, because the, the content and the subject matter was so unique. And, you know, whenever I approached those scripts, I tried to make them very conversational again, that, that just tends to be my natural writing style, whether I'm doing a, a script a spiel or like right now I'm trying to write a book. Um, and hopefully that'll be done within a year or so, but, um, it seems like forever I've been trying to write this book, but, um, you know, whatever I write, I always try and take this very conversational tone to it, but I always also try and put myself in the shoes of the audience. And I think, you know, to be a good show writer that you, you kind of have to do that. You can't write just what sounds good to you. You have to be able to, um, kind of get getting your audience's shoes 
you know, and, and at Disney, it's such a broad audience. Um, puns, you know, were, were something I'd love to do. So I, I always, in, in humor is something I always, you know, was always fun for me. So I always tried to inject a little bit of humor and fun into my scripts as well. Um, I, it's probably a, a very long, convoluted answer to your question. Um, well, that's what but, we love. That's what we're going for. <laughs> but but it was, uh, you know, it was it was a, a very very fun challenge, if you will. You know, every single day, you never knew what you were going to be writing about. When uh, on the backstage shuttle tour, things would change all the time. There would be new facades or new costumes or new whatever it may be in the walking tour new makeups or masks or things like that that we brought in so we were always kind of like tweaking things and making them different uh and one the, of my and the, the the sorry and the tv shows that they're filming there are also rotating and, i imagine well exactly yes so when we're going through and they're looking down in the sound stage and they're looking at the set for the mickey mouse club or the set for passenger 57 uh, they they had this Delta Airlines plane that it was a fuselage that they had cut in half. And at the time, that was the most realistic movie set for an airplane uh, because it, it was an actual airplane, uh, but it was cut in half so they could position it however they needed to and open it up for, for lighting it however they needed to. So it was really fun because I got to go down and talk to the set designers and, and uh, the directors and you know whoever was working on whatever the production was and try and get as much information so i could take and throw those kind of tidbits into the script uh, and sometimes you know i was responsible for what was out there um i remember shortly after i i got hired on to wdi they had sent me out to california uh to glendale to to the mothership if you will uh, to 1401 Flower Street, and while I was out there, one of the things that my my uh, my boss had told me to do, he said, you know, we're coming out with this new movie uh, called, it's a Honey to Honey, I Shrunk, uh, sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. It's called Honey, I Blow Up the Baby. Uh, so I've arranged for you to see a screening of it, uh, take a look at the movie, and see if there are any cool props or anything that maybe we could use. So I went out there and I got to uh, see a screening of Honey, Blow Up the Baby in this, you know, on the back, you know, on the Disney Studios in their screening room. There were probably about 15 people in there. And it was really kind of neat because a lot of the special effects hadn't been completed yet. So you'd be watching the movie and then all of a sudden a uh, screen would come up that said, you know, special effect here or giant baby here or something like that. <laughs> but uh, there was one scene when, when the uh, baby, you know, got to be the size of like a 20 story building. Uh, he was wearing these red Converse sneakers and uh, we actually had one of the uh, practical. So this is before CGI. Right. And, and everything mm -hmm. was still done. They were making models and doing everything in a practical way. So we actually arranged to have one of these gigantic sneakers red converse sneakers brought back and it was so big the only place we could stick it was on the back lot and you know if you're your listeners who are 
probably, you know, old enough to remember the shuttle tour. Some of them may have actually remember seeing this gigantic red sneaker on the back lot. It was really kind of interesting. Um, another really fun uh, facade that we brought out was from the movie The Rocketeer. And there was a very iconic uh, uh, building in that called the Bulldog Cafe, which was exactly what it sounds like. It was like a little restaurant where the hero and his girlfriend and stuff would, would have lunch. And it was a uh, restaurant that looked like a bulldog uh, that was sitting down. Um, so we actually just had that just assembled and shipped out here and stuck that on our residential street. Um, I mean, things were always changing. And, and it was really very, very fun. And so, you know, with, with I want to really get into the pro, your process um, yeah. in this. But sure, um, sure. So, you know, you're writing, and I imagine you're having to think about a lot. Um, but yeah, you know, you came on after I'm assuming the initial scripts were written for these attractions. Correct. So, Correct. and so you're tasked with updating. So it's like. I, the way you're describing it, I just imagine you, you know, plugging holes in like a ship. That's, you know, another hole like you, okay, we fixed that. We added that, you know, whatever, whatever movie just got done shooting. We got a new script and then something else. Oh, we got added a new prop and then you would just keep, you know, fixing this. Um, but what, so let's, I, um, my first question is with your relationship. So what was your relationship to the person giving the spiel? Uh, did you did you go on these tours after writing them and listen to how they're being received? Um, did you speak with uh, like a leader of of the people giving the spiels? Um, you know, what was your relationship with that, or were you more removed, where you were just writing and then you would get feedback in a different form? Yeah, that that was mostly it. To be honest, I mean, I I never really had time. I mean, when I, when I would have time, I would like to go and and take the tours and kind of blend in there and stuff and check them out and. Uh, certainly when friends and family would come to town, obviously you would take them out and do your, you know, do, do the tourist thing. Um, but I never had a lot of time to do that as much as I would have liked. Uh, so in the case of like the tours, for example, that kind of became a almost kind of formulaic in a way where we knew we were getting something in. I would write it, you know, it would be approved by the powers that be. And then we would just kind of send it out and, uh, uh, you know, we'd just kind of go out to the tour guides. Now there was another project I worked on that was incredibly collaborative with the operations side. And that was in the great movie ride. Uh, one, one of the, uh, tasks that I was given was to kind of plus the script in the great movie ride a little bit. And specifically what they wanted to do was not only freshen up a little bit of this, the general scripting, uh, but mostly what they wanted me to do was work on updating the gangster scene and the Western scene. So when the uh, gangster Muggsy, the gangster or the bandit would take over the, the, ride vehicle um i went I, I worked for probably about a month if i remember or so and we would go in there early in the morning or uh after you know it, it was after the park had either before the park opened or after it closed usually it was before the park opened and work on staging uh so so 
in addition to writing, sometimes you, you would get pulled if, if you had the skill set. They would, they would stretch you, which was wonderful. And I had a background as a director and, and you know, producer and director. So I worked with another guy who was very, very talented. And the two of us, uh, and, and his job was really, he came from a strong theater background. And uh, the two of us uh, would work on the staging in there and the scripting. And we usually would have one or two uh, um, of the tour guides that we would work with. One in particular, I remember her name was uh, Deborah. Um, she's now a, a DJ, uh, a local DJ here in town. Um, uh, it was fantastic, but, but, you know, we would go in there. It was wonderful because we would write the script and we would, uh, do the staging. And then we would ask them to kind of run through, uh, we would have a gangster or a bandit and Deborah was usually the tour guide and, and they would kind of run through their, uh, parts. Um, and, and it gave us a chance to kind of try it out and see what worked best in, Obviously, having their input because they, you know, they they represented, if you will, the rest of the cast members in those parts. So their feedback was invaluable uh, to helping us kind of tweak those scenes. And with with that, was there anything that, like, do you remember anything specifically that you learned? Because I mean, this is a completely yeah. You're you're going into this. It's a new type of script screenwriting. Like you just. I don't know if it, you could call it screenwriting or I guess it's show writing in this case, but, uh, yeah. of course it's show writing cause there is no screen. Um, <laughs> but, uh, with show writing. So this is, you know, you do, you do this, you know, do the spiels on the tour, which is a new medium. And then this is a, a different medium where you're like combining a spiel with performance, with an attraction that's timed. And there's, right. I mean, so what were some difficulties? What were some things you learned? Like as you started to work with this kind of beast of an attraction, um, those two scenes, uh, I think the number one thing that we were concerned about was, uh, operational safety. So making sure that the, uh, staging that we did in there was going to be safe for the cast members. Uh, and also sight lines were very important to us to make sure that no matter where somebody was sitting within the, uh, um, within the rod vehicle, they had a good sight line to what the action was. So, you know, sometimes that meant instead of having the gangster, for example, do a little bit of a stick down on the sidewalk, we would maybe move them up the stairs in the alleyway and, and have them deliver some lines from there, Th things like that. Um, the other part was also just making sure that the, uh, um, action made sense with the dialogue that I was writing, um, you know, and that it, it didn't come across as maybe overly, I mean, it was cheesy anyway, you know, to use, if you want to use that term, but, but to find that balance where the scripting and the staging kind of all work together to give a really kind of a nice performance flow. If, if you will, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, and I, I, 
see, I don't have like a negative connotation to the word cheesy. That's the yeah. that's like the era that I I really love. Yeah. And as you know, because it it changes, and I guess in hindsight, maybe what's happening today is going to be cheesy too. But there was an amount of like, th- there's that th- there's that, you know, I think gap between like, oh, you know, this is cheesy, and the people that make it don't realize it, versus this is cheesy, but they're just having right. fun with it. Right. And that's why I think a lot of those attractions, especially in that MGM era, were so fun and memorable. Because it was like, you know, I mean, it was exactly what, you know, Eisner says in his dedication. It's the Hollywood that, you know, never was and always will be. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, just something as simple as the scene where the bank blows up. Right. So if you're, you know, hopefully a lot of your listeners remember the uh, attraction. Um, It's kind of funny. And and I'll get back to to what I was going to tell you. But, I, you know, I used to always take comfort. Um, as time went on at, at, after I left Imagineering and the studios started to kind of reinvent itself and a lot of all the classic attractions would start to go away, I would always take comfort in myself in that, well, at least I worked on the great movie ride. That was probably one of my most high-profile projects. They'll never take the great movie ride away. I mean, that's like the marquee attraction in there and say, Wah, 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 wah. You know? <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that was anyway. That was rough. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, uh, as I was going to say, uh, you know, there, there, I, I remember there, there was uh, the scene where, where they shot the dynamite, the gangster shoots or, or the bandit shoots the dynamite, throws it into the bank, the blank bank blows up. And I remember we spent, probably a couple days probably doing eight or 10 or 12 different variations of getting that scene right to, you know, where in the break in the dialogue, the bandit would shoot the dynamite, you know, to, to light the fuse and how to hold the dynamite and the gun to do that. And then at what point to throw it into the, I mean, obviously it had to be timed somewhat to the explosion, but and then once it got thrown in there, okay, now where's the bandit going to run to to hide and shield himself or herself uh, from the explosion? So what seems like a very, very simple uh, uh, task, you know, and in, in scene, it, it's amazing how much thought goes into that. Um, and, and again, a lot of it's to just make sure you've got all these different things that you need to consider. You've got the safety um, in place. You've got the sight lines in place. You've got the timing uh, in place, um, all these different things. So, And and you were brought on to the great movie ride to plus it up. It had already been opened since Correct. Uh, instance or May of 1989 when the park opened. Correct. Um, but so what was, did you, I'm sure you heard, what was the, the reasoning behind the plusing it up was there, it was it operational. Was it just let's, let's mix it up. Was it guest satisfaction? Did you ever hear what that reason um, was? I, I think it was a combination of yes, 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 yes. And yes, you know, probably <laughs> all of <laughs> right. all, all of those things to some extent. Um, I mean, listen, this, the script and the attraction that were in place, there were already pretty solid. So, you know, I certainly am not going to take credit for, saying, you know, I went so far as to that I rewrote, you know, the, 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 uh, 
great movie ride. A lot of it was kind of operational, to be honest. Um, but in dealing with those operational concerns, for example, like where to shoot the gun or uh, I, I don't know how if anyone even remembers this or not, but when the great movie ride first opened up, the way the gangster scene, for example, was staged, the gangster would come out and the tour guy would challenge him and say, hey, what are you doing? You know, you're going to take over. And gangster's like, hey, I'm in charge here, buddy. And then the gangster would actually shoot the tour guide. And the costume had like a rip-away pocket. And underneath the pocket was like a low blood splat. And the tour guide would, you know, do this very dramatic, cartoony kind of death, you know, almost like an Elmer Fudd or, or something like that kind of a death where he would spin around and just really overplay it and then fall over a reeling onto a mattress that was out of sight. Uh, but they realized that it probably isn't a good idea if we're bringing kids and stuff through here. And it's probably not the most Disney way uh, to have the gangster shooting the tour guide. So uh, that was, you know, one thing. Another thing was we wanted to make sure, for example, whenever the gangster or the bandit shot their gun and discharged their gun, that it was never pointed towards the ride vehicle. So, you know, that was a case where I'm not sure if, if, and again, I'm trying to remember, you know, a long time ago, but I don't think it had that level of detail in the operation operational instructions within the script to actually tell them, do not point your gun this way. So we put very specific directions in there saying, okay, when you fire the first shot, this is how you hold your gun. When you fire the second shot, this is how you, you know, hold your gun or where you point your gun. Um, and we were very, very conscious about that kind of stuff. So, um, some of it was cleaning it up. Some of it was just, uh, you know, we had a good idea, like at the very end, at, at the very last thing is the exit uh, spiel. Uh, when the ride vehicle is coming into the unloading area, um, it was very originally the way it was written was just in a very traditional gather your belongings. The doors are going to open, step out. And I can't remember, to be honest, if it was myself or uh, my, my partner in crime that I was working with, but. We thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to maybe kind of write that as like an Oscar acceptance speech? So, you know, we kind of turned it into, okay, you know, for our next scene, it's called The Exit. And, you know, <laughs> we want you to gather your belongings and rise to your feet and give a thunderous applause to the tour guide. And so, so we just made it a little bit more themed and just a little bit more fun. Um, so in that case, it was more just to kind of add a little bit more show at the end yeah that's 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 really cool the uh i know there's i hadn't i had not been informed because i've never done anything extensively on the great movie ride i knew of some of the effects that by the i don't know if it was by that point that you were working on or in the first few years no longer operated like when you first went to the ride you had the the, the show berkeley the yeah. uh the showgirls spinning yeah. and they stopped spinning stuff like that but yeah. uh but yeah you know the, those live segments i think it's just because they're not a physical thing um that you know like it's it's a lot easier to say oh well those used to spin and now they don't versus you know this whole idea of we have to actually rewrite this and that's really yeah. that's really that's really fascinating and it's, it's got to yeah. be interesting to go into a situation like that where 
and you kind of had this room to play with, I would imagine, with all yeah. these with a lot of constraints, but yeah. you also do get to have a lot of fun with it. Oh, it was so much fun. <laughs> it was yeah. so much fun. <laughs> the uh and so not to move away from the great movie ride um yeah. uh, immediately, but I know you've you know you you've talked about this ride extensively and the question I want to ask is what even if it was just you had to write a paragraph, is there any attraction that you just don't ever like get asked about, don't ever really talk about, like that you just maybe did something in passing for um, that you remember, or were you mainly focused on these MGM rides? No, I mean, um, I wrote like a little bit of the Albert Awal, uh radio broadcast that's in the queue for the Jungle Cruise. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So that was really kind of fun. Um, you know, there were a lot of just like really small little projects I did that were never even really meant to be um, long-term. Uh, they, they were just patches, if you will. But even with that, they were just really kind of fun and, and stuff I was like really kind of proud of. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, I remember when we were building Splash Mountain, uh, there was a time when uh, they they couldn't, the, the train that navigates around the Magic Kingdom couldn't go out, couldn't go past Splash Mountain. So, because uh, the track was torn up while what they were constructing it. So the train would, would leave the Main Street train station, it would go up to where Splash Mountain was, people could get off and other people could reboard, but then it would go backwards and it would come mm-hmm. backwards to the uh, Main Street station. And, and that's kind of how it ran for whatever uh, month or however long it was. So my uh, boss came up to me one day and said, Brian, said, uh, I want you to uh, write some signs that people can, can look at that kind of explains what's going on, uh, why the train, you know, isn't going all the way around and, you know, just goes halfway up and comes back. Um and he's, he said, you know, let me give you a suggestion. He said, uh, have you ever heard of Burma Shave? Uh, and, and there was this company back in like the 1950s and 1960s called Burma Shave. They made shaving cream. And uh, when the United States was first creating the highway system, uh, this company, Burma Shave, had this wonderful marketing program where they would put a series of I think it was like six signs out, six signs in a row. And each sign had like a little limerick on it, like a, a line to a limerick. Uh, and as you passed each sign, you put it together and it made like a little poem. And then at the end, it said, buy Burma shave. You know, it was very silly kind of a thing. So he said, you know, do a little research into that and see if you can come up with some Burma style, uh, Burma shave style signs. So that's what I did. And, and I came up with this series of signs. It was a stupid little poem. And I can't remember it exactly, but I'm going to try. It was something like, um, uh, wondering why you can't go back. We're building Splash Mountain. We have to rip up some track. And, you know, it was just a silly yeah. little thing. But it was just, I don't know, just kind of fun. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> One of the other, uh, one of the first jobs I was ever given was to write some family-friendly graffiti for 
the uh, uh, New York Street backlot. They were doing some construction. They wanted to put construction barricades up, and it was New York City, so they couldn't have pristine, clean-looking construction barriers. So they said, write some family-friendly graffiti. I'm like, what's family-friendly graffiti? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you figure it out. So, yeah, so so that's what I did, you know, and I came up with a couple silly little things. I, you know, put it on there, and it was fun. Um, so, you know, it's kind of funny. I mean, not, it, it's, it's always fun to talk about the big attractions and, and those big projects and stuff, but as an Imagineer, I mean, your day-to-day work is, is filled with so many just small little things like that, which kind of, you know, in, in some ways they can be just as fun and just as fulfilling and crazy um it is the big stuff absolutely that was that was awesome i was hoping that i could get oh, just a little nugget like that because that's the stuff that you know i'm i'll have to go i'm sure there's one picture or one video out there of the the poem that you that you made on the track yeah. um but those are the well, things if anyone that... has it send it to me please i'd love to see it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i've no, been we'll, trying to we'll... find a picture i did I, I helped art direct this mural on the back of the animation building that was all these different this is another kind of an interesting thing so nothing to do with show writing but more with maybe project management or art direction or whatever but uh they um one of the art directors had designed a mural uh that was going on the back of the animation building and you could see it because when you were standing in line for the shuttle tour uh you were right behind the animation building so you're looking at this blank wall basically of a building and of course you can't have just a big blank wall at disney i mean you know it's just screaming for imagineering to do something to it uh so what they decided to do is they created this mural of characters and it was all the classic disney characters and there were probably about 15 of them or so 15 or 20 um and it was really interesting because uh, the way they did this mural is that they didn't hand paint the murals right directly onto the wall. Uh, what they did was they actually cut the silhouette of the characters out from steel, and then they painted them on uh, on the steel, and then that was mounted onto the wall. So it was kind of like dimensional. Um, there were a couple of the characters like Ariel um, that we hand painted into the window, or I shouldn't say we, the animators. But one of the really cool things about that project, uh, there, there were a couple of really cool things about that project. One of them was that it was one of the first times where we had to match the ink color, uh, of the animators ink up to the PMS colors that the sign painters, the, the, the painters were, were using to paint the characters onto the steel uh, silhouettes. Um, and, and that was really kind of cool. And the way they did that was they, uh, we actually had the animators uh, hand drew each of the characters and hand painted them so that we had an actual cell for each of the characters. And then those were taken over to the central shops, uh, which is the workshop behind uh the Magic Kingdom, where you know a lot of this rehab and and, and work is is done on signs and stuff, and uh, they actually 
took and matched up the PMS color chips uh, to match the paint color with the ink color because ink, you know, doesn't go by PMS colors. It goes by uh, its own color uh, system. Uh, so that was really kind of cool. The other thing that was really kind of interesting about this is that we had to make sure we had the scale right of all these characters. So when Tinkerbell was next to Blue, you know, how big is that? How big is Mickey and Minnie standing next to each other? How big is, you know, Mickey standing next to uh, the owl from Peter Pan? How, how big Blue would be next to uh, Mickey? How big Tinkerbell was next to the owl from Peter Pan? And that hadn't really been done before. I mean, we, we had, like I said, probably about 15 of these different characters. Uh, Ariel was a brand new character at the time to us. So how big were her proportions compared to you know, all the other characters. Um, and, and it was just a very, very fascinating process to kind of see how, how that came about. Yeah. And so we're sorry, where was this? This was on the animation building in MGM or was this on the animation building in, in uh, Burbank? No, no, no. This was on the animation building on MGM. Okay. Uh, on the back side of it. Yeah. And so, so you said you couldn't find a picture or you have a picture of it. No, I'd love to find a picture if anyone's got one. I've been looking for 25 years. <laughs> All right, well, we're gonna get a picture. We're gonna. That's what we got. We got to find a picture of those because this, this is that's one of my favorite things is just uh, crowdsourcing and because somebody has it somewhere in some collection. Yeah, um, I hope so. So yeah, we'll find that and we'll find the the train stuff. But uh, I have a I have some more questions for you. Um, and this one yeah. is is gonna be pretty general. Um. But it might might spark an interesting uh, tidbit. The um, so you do a lot of you know you, you teach now and you you talk a lot about um your work then and now and theme entertainment and show writing yeah. and, and everything you yeah. do, um and so you encounter a lot of people that yeah. know a lot less than you, um yeah. and a lot of people that are going to be listening to this of course are not Imagineers. I, I would say almost all of them are not Imagineers, um uh, and if you are an Imagineer. Uh, go ahead and email me, but, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but most of them are not. So you're approached by people all the time, you know, whether it's show writing, whether it's imagineering, what is the one thing that people seem to misunderstand about what you did or what you do imagineering show writing? Like what's oh, the big boy. misunderstanding? And if there's multiple, just go over them, you know, let's clear the, let's clear up some of these misconceptions about, wow. uh, your, your work or that's your line. That's a question. Um, that it's easy. I think is probably, you know, the biggest misconception is that, you know, it, it's because it's fun, it's easy. And uh, I, I would say, um, you know, it's definitely fun. At times it could be easy, but uh, there's uh, an incredible amount of work and thought that goes into it. And the example I talked about before uh, where we tried maybe, you know, six or eight or 10 different ways to get the bank robber to blow up the, the bank in the great movie ride it is a great example of that where, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I think people just kind of take for granted um, that happens and, and someone's got to do it and figure it out. So uh, the work, you know, it's, it's incredibly fun. It's incredibly fulfilling. 
Uh, at times it can be easy, but at times it can be really, really challenging and tough. Um, so that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions. Uh, they, they think that, um, you know, and, and I would say maybe the other thing too is that, and, and I, I, I don't want this to come out sounding, I don't know, self-centered or whatever, but, you know, it's kind of funny that a lot of people do tend to, and I get it, you know, they tend to put the Imagineers up on a bit of a pedestal. Um, but we're, you know, we're really just like anyone else. You know, we put our pants on one leg at a time. Most of us do, I think. Um, and if you're an Imagineer that doesn't do that, please email me. <laughs> <laughs> if you you put, so. put both on at the same time. No, I, 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 yeah, and, no. And, and you know, uh, but we realize that we're very lucky to have been able, or you know, the guys who are, and women who are still doing it now, or you know, the one that that either we we were you know blessed and lucky to have done it, or are still doing it. It's and and I will say that anyone I ever worked with at WDI, I mean, we always. We, we always understood that there was a responsibility that we had, if you will, in, in a, uh, I, I wouldn't call it a burden, but, but certainly we were aware of, of the importance uh, of the work that was being done. And nothing was being done in a very trite, lighthearted way, you know, things, <coughs> excuse me, um, Things were always thought out uh, very carefully, so uh, we we always respected the work. Yeah, I, th- I I tend to you know because it's a job that everybody th- wants. Everybody thinks you know they could do like you mentioned, or not maybe not think they could do, but they think it's super obtainable and um, and maybe it is for for some people with specific trades, but. You know, the it's interesting to hear as I'm talking because I just did a podcast um, with Ray Kinman who did a lot of yeah. the wood carvings around Disney. Yeah. Um, and you know his story of how he got into Imagineering and your story, like every story of how you know people get into Imagineering, it's it's so fascinating because there's no like simple answer of oh well there's an application online and they get back <laughs> to you in a few days and you know like and that's what people are wanting and so when you you know that's why. And it, everybody knows it's not that. And so, you know, we put put the this role on this pedestal because it's like this unattainable, it seems, you know, thing. And you get to do what on the outside seems like the coolest job in the world. And the reviews, honestly, have been good from the people I've talked to. Yeah. Um, so it's it, I, I think that's natural. But I do see how that could if, you know, you talk to enough people that I could see how that perception could come across. So sometimes I still wonder, you know, how the heck I was fortunate enough to stumble into it. Um, I I always had confidence in in my skills and my ability. And like I said, I think part of it was being in the right place at the right time. You know, part of it, I guess, was maybe have the right skill set. But it was, uh, I'm very grateful, very thankful of of, having done what I did. I'm very proud of, of the work I did. So it's in... You know, it's kind of now looking back after all these years, it's almost kind of like being 
part of a fraternity or something. And, you know, I remember when, when I was working for WDI, it was long enough ago where some of the, the original legends were still around. I mean, I got to meet John Hench a couple times and I got to walk through the magic kingdom in Epcot with John and, you know, hear him talk about, how color, you know, he picked certain colors for things and hear his stories or Raleigh Crump would come in and talk to us or um, Mark Davis on that a couple times. Um, and, wow. and these guys were just so gracious and, and amazing and, and the nicest people. And they, they always wanted to just kind of pass down you know their experiences and and give advice and um you know just kind of keep the 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 legacy of walk going um it, it, it was it was amazing to to have the chance to talk to some of those guys absolutely well that sounds incredible yeah. the um okay so i have a couple more questions for you and thanks again for giving me so much of your time sure. um so I want to take, I want to go back because you mentioned something that I didn't know that I found very interesting is you were, you said something that, you, so before you were in Imagineering, you were already in Disney. Correct. And you were doing grand openings. Correct. So what <laughs> were you, what were you doing in grand? Were you writing spiels for grand openings? Were you, no. what were you doing? No. Um, I was doing a couple different things. Um, a lot of the time I would be assigned to media teams that were coming in. So we would have like news teams from all over the country. Usually it's like, you know, the cameraman, the lighting guy or sound guy and the reporter. And each one of these little news teams, when they would come in for these grand openings, because back then, you know, it was Charlie Ridgeway was the head of publicity. And for those of your listeners who don't know, uh, Charlie, he was, he's a Disney legend and was, um, just, an amazing PR guy for, for Walt Disney world for many, many years. Um, and so, uh, we would have these amazing, uh, press events for these grand openings. And many times I would be assigned to kind of be the Disney liaison, uh, with the news crews, uh, that were coming in to cover these press events. And it was, it was a ton of fun. Um, you know, I would set up their interview schedule with their VIPs. And, you know, I got to when Star Tours open, for example, you know, Anthony Daniels and Mark that in um, uh, Mark Hamill, uh, you know, people like that. Um, Jim Henson, I got to meet. Uh, so it was it was oh, it wow. was a ton of fun. Yeah. Um, That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So so that was what I did most of the time for, for those grand openings was work as a, um, what they called a pool representative, uh, which was the Disney liaison basically to make sure when these news crews came in and they wanted to set up shots or do a stand up somewhere, you know, I would, uh, coordinate the logistics and get clearance for them to stand in front of Splash Mountain and make sure they were standing in the right place. So the reporter got splashed if that's what, he or she wanted so it, it, it was a ton of fun uh, so, so so whenever you, we see those in hindsight rather cheesy setups of all these right. attractions you're off camera like right like saying run the car run the car so we can get right. a splash 
Right, um, right. That's and funny. also before that, you know, doing all the, the legwork to, to get to that point. Um, I remember we did a, uh, a little cat uh, was live with Regis and Kathy Lee at the time. Uh, and and uh, they did like a little shtick inside the primetime cafe where they were dressed up as uh, like Laura Bob and Laura Petrie from the Dick Van Dyke show. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so. Uh, just just helping coordinate stuff like that. It was, it, it was uh, a lot of fun. They used to do this thing called the Goofy Games every year. And uh, the Goofy Games were uh, kind of like they, they would bring in a news team. Again, Charlie Ridgway, you know, the master of PR, uh, would, uh, I, I think this may have been his brainchild, I'm not sure, but um, they would bring in news teams and every news team would be able to bring one celebrity with them. Uh, so, uh, you know, the team from New York might bring, uh, you know, a, a New York Giants football player, a New York Jets football player. Uh, but they actually would have news teams in from uh, all over the world. And I remember that they, there was a news team from Russia and they brought a cosmonaut, which was really cool. There was a team from England, and they brought, um, if anyone's old enough to remember this guy, Eddie the Eagle Edwards, who was a British long jumper in, in, in this uh, downhill uh, ski jumper. And he was famous because every time he would go, he would wipe out. Um, but Eddie just had this tremendous uh, personality, and he became just like the the darling of the Olympics that he was in. Um, and uh, getting to meet him and hang out with him was just like a ton of fun. So uh, it was it was a really interesting time. Yeah, and then before you go, I have. One question, um, or maybe one or two. I might have three, <laughs> okay. but at least at, oh. at least two. Um, so one question I like to ask, and if the answer is no, it's fine. We can cut it out. Um, but you know, you you do a lot of these podcasts. You teach. Is there any story that you have not told enough, or that you just think? Uh, is there any story that you think you know have ne- you never been in the right context to tell it? Mm-hmm. Um, because we go, we go deep here. We don't, there's nothing insignificant in our eyes. So is there anything, you know, the story you give about the train is so great, but if you have yeah. any that you just haven't told in a while that you would oh, might maybe be willing Lord. to share with us. Um, I don't know. Gosh. Um, so many crazy stories, you know, I mean, this is kind of like a silly, stupid little story, but I'll throw it out there anyway. Um, like on the backstage tour, I remember one time uh, we got a box in the mail uh, that came to me at WDI, and I open it up and I pull it out, and it's a very realistic-looking head of an actor, and it was a prop that was used in a gangster movie where they had to like shoot the gangster, I guess, in the head, and this was the prop head that was very realistic. And I remember having that thing on my desk and, you know, I was goofing around with it and stuff, but then, okay. So we had to take and put it like out on stage in when, when you did the walking tour, one of the little areas that you walked 
through was an area that was made to look like a makeup stain. And there were all kinds of like makeup props and prosthetics and uh, makeup jars and things like that. So, so we put the head out there and um, then we had to, uh, I, I wanted to put like some makeup jars in, in bottles and stuff around it. So I actually, I mean, everyone knows Imagineers are famous for like slipping in their names and initials and stuff like that, kind of like little Easter eggs just for them. And on all every one of the little makeup labels, um, it was small enough where you couldn't, if you were a guest going through, you couldn't see it. But if anyone ever went down close enough and picked it up and read it, it was, they were all like, had my name on them and stuff like that. So um, we, we always like to, to do silly little things like that. Um, uh, gosh. That's, that's a great I remember, one. I, I remember after that movie, The Rocketeer came out, we had the, the Rocketeer, the uh, prop, the, the jet packs in the uh, helmet, actually, from the movie. Um, and if, no, again, if a lot of you guys have never seen The Rocketeer, go out and see if you can find it on, probably not on Netflix, but rent it and, and watch it. It's a fun movie. Uh, but I remember, you know, a bunch of us in the office would take turns posing, wearing the helmet and the jet pack and stuff like that. So, um, just, I, I mean, there were just so many goofy things that went on on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, maybe some of that was a, a release of knowing how, you know, how, how important the work was. You needed ways sometimes to kind of just kind of have fun and, and mess around and, uh, it, it was, uh, I remember, uh, I'll tell one more quick, just silly little story, but I remember one time we were sitting there and, and one of the art directors comes around and he's like, hey, everyone, come on outside, come on outside. And this guy is probably, you know, in his 50s, but was acting like a, a kid. And uh, he's like, come on out, come on out. So we all go outside. At the time, we weren't in an actual building. We were still in like project trailers on the back lot. Of, of the studios and we go outside and all of a sudden there's like this snow falling and this is like in July, it's like, you know, 95 degrees outside, but there's like this snow kind of falling. And what had happened is he had gotten a prototype because it WDI, you know, manufacturers and stuff were always sending us, you know, first, you know, generation technology and things like that to look at. So he got in one of these machines that blows out, the soap bubbles that looks like snow falling. And now they're pretty commonplace. You see them fairly often. But back then, this was like one of the first prototypes. And, and uh, it was so tickled that, you know, he like stuck it up on, a, on, on the roof and was blowing snow over the building. And, you know, we go out and it was like, okay, this is like, we're getting paid to do this. <laughs> You're on the clock. So, yeah. <laughs> come yeah. come, come so. watch my snow. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, yeah, and it actually wound up in the park. Um, oh, really? We wound up putting it in, in the Disney MGM Studios. If now we're uh, was it Pizza Rizzo or Rizzo Rats Pizza or something is over in the Muppet area? Mm-hmm. There's a little area, um, and I think it's still there. Last time I'm pretty sure I saw it. Uh, that's got like a little snow scene 
it's like in a little off to the side alleyway. Um, and it's got like a snow, uh, it looks like a snow scene and he had stuck it up on the roof and it was, uh, we were for a while had snow blowing down there. So when people were walking through, no matter what time of the year it was, there would be snow falling. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Okay. I have, uh, well, one, one more final question until I think of one more and then I'll let you go. Um, but the, uh, but so, so you do a lot of, you, you mentioned how impactful the work is and you, you're constantly aware of this. Um, because you know, it's not only the stress of, um, you want to make a good product, um, like every artist and, uh, you know, does, but it's sure. that now that knowledge that, you know, millions of people have the highest anticipation for this, sure. for, for your setting. And that's gotta be, I mean, maybe not a constant stress, but it, you're, you're knowledgeable, I would imagine of that, you know, there's millions of people that are all having a once in a lifetime experience and expecting right. to, and, you, and you're having to deliver on that. Right. Um, so my question is, you know, I, I don't know how much time you spent in the parks while they were operating, but did you ever see the impact of anything you did or see oh, an attraction? Yeah. And if, if so, do you have one specific instance that stands out? Um, or in general, you could just speak to that. Um, you know, uh, um, I, first of all, yeah, I mean, I, I spent, and I think all of us spent a lot of time in the parks. Um, if not, because we were working in the parks, uh, you know, if you're having a bad day, you could just go out into the park and walk around and kind of see how your work affects people and the smiles and especially the kids and everything. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was something that fortunately I got to do quite a bit was kind of see the impact of, of my work. Um, and I think the first time I remember being in the great movie ride and after we made the script changes operational and I was standing by the unload dock and watching the, the tour guide give that new spiel I ran that, that little silly little Oscar speech um, and watching the guests, you know, kind of actually stand up and clap and, you know, the smiles on their faces as they were getting off was very, very cool. Um, and there were times, you know, my kids are, they, I, I was an Imagineer before they were born. So they never really knew me while I was working as an Imagineer. And when they were younger, uh, and they were going to the park or we were in the park, I'd say, you know, I, I worked on that. I did that. And they'd be like, no, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, right. Cause you're never a captain on your own ship. Right. Uh, yeah. Get home, take out the garbage, right? Uh, but um, you know, I, I I would get home and I would you know show them drawings or pull out a script or whatever. And they, oh, wow, you really did do that. So so you know that that was kind of cool. And as as they got older, uh, it it was kind of fun. I mean, now that they're my my oldest is actually lives in Texas now, and, and he's on his own. Um, but my two younger ones are in college and I remember my middle son telling me he was at a, uh, dinner function for his fraternity one night and, uh, he was sitting at 
the table with all of his friends and their dates and everything. And they were just talking about their families and stuff. And what's your mom doing? What's your dad doing? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he said, well, my dad used to be an Imagineer. And he said, when he said that, one of the girls at the table almost like freaked out and went, ah! you know, and just was like, really, you're kidding me, an Imagineer? And it, it was, you know, really kind of embarrassing for him. Um, and, and he called me up and he told me that and I just started like cracking up. I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, see, I always told you, you know, <laughs> you never believed <clears throat> it was. Yeah. You never believed me. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, and, and uh, again, you know, I mean, it, it's very humbling when you get reactions like that. Um, you know, it still happens to this day, people who don't know about my background, I'll, I'll mention that in every once in a while, some will be, be like, Oh my gosh, you know? And so, so it's kind of cool. Um, very humbling. Um, but if nothing else, it just really kind of, um, never lets you forget the importance that, uh, of the work, you know, and, and the, the effect that it's had and you know especially now uh imagineers are getting a lot of um recognition because of, of the special that was on disney plus um mm -hmm. and you know it's it's like i said you know it's very very humbling very uh very kind of cool it's kind of a neat legacy uh to to have so Absolutely. It's, it's awesome. And I, uh, and I love getting to talk to, you know, if, when I do get the chance, I just try to reach out. Um, when I see, you know, I saw your website, um, yeah. cause I was looking up something random and I was like, Oh, Hey, this is a former Imagineer. I should see if he'll say yes. And you did. <laughs> um, so that was, that worked out great. Um, yeah. but you know, stuff like that, you know, it is so, because it's a, it is a medium of art that is, is still new and it's still, it's gonna, it's still evolving. And, I just I think it's so it's so fascinating to hear the people behind it because it is the of all the mediums in my opinion it is the most unsung in terms of artists like everybody yeah. kind of understands it a lot of people recognize it as an art but you know you don't get to hear about the artists enough especially the artists of you know what you're doing because you're doing something so specific so highly skilled and highly involved but you know yeah. you're not getting the same um, the same kind of questions as you know someone that can say like oh you know i built that roller coaster it's like right. yeah but you you were doing the exact same thing at the exact same time and that's where it's like oh i want to see i want to know what that was i want to know the wood carver i want to know the show writer because that's the stuff that interests me and i think that's luckily because of the imagineering story and a lot of these other things the discourse at least from what i've seen has evolved past just like oh did you know there's a basketball court in the matterhorn to now we're actually yeah. discussing you know, some actual like operational and, and artistic stuff. So yeah, I'm, I am very happy. It's going in this direction. We're getting to hear more. We'll see more about, you know, the thought process of people like you. And so, uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing, um, your stories and your process pleasure. and your information. Um, and everyone listening, thank you for listening. Um, and don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the podcast. And thank you for visiting yeah. defunct land. <laughs>